The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. It works. Uh, let us pray. This is, this is prayer number 110 uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. This is written by Miles Coverdale. Lord Jesus, be mindful of your promise. Think of us, your servants. And when we shall depart, speak to our spirits these loving words. Today you shall be with me in joy. O Lord Jesus Christ, remember us, your servants, who trust in you when our tongues cannot speak, when the sight of our eyes fails, when our ears are stopped. Let our spirits always rejoice in you and be joyful about our salvation, which you, through your death, have purchased for us. Amen. How are we doing there? Oh, about to restart. Yes. All right, so today we are going to begin the story of how the Book of Common Prayer came about. And so to do that, I'd love to have my graphics up. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> Psalm 119, verse 15, from the Coverdale Psalter, says, Thy word is a lantern unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And a quote from Thomas Cranmer. In the scriptures be the fat pastures of the soul. Therein is no venomous meat, no unwholesome thing. They be the very dainty and pure feeding. He that is ignorant shall find there what he should learn. So once again, we'll begin with the story. In fact, Today's entire class will be a story. Next class as well. Um, so, uh, get your snacks if you've got them. In 1536, as William Tyndall was, laid, was led to the stake where he would be strangled and burned, he uttered the prayer, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Tyndall had fled England for continental Europe because he opposed Henry's marriage annulment. And yet Tyndall was fervently Protestant, so he had to watch his step wherever he fled. In the Netherlands, he was betrayed by a friend and handed over to authorities of the Holy Roman Empire. For what crimes had Tyndall been guilty? Well, amongst others, Translating the Bible into English. Tyndall was dedicated to uh, was dedicated to getting the Bible into 
the hands of the people, getting it into their own language, getting them to understand it much as Luther had in Germany. He, uh, in a dispute uh, with, with a Catholic theologian, he even said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. In the late Middle Ages, a priest named John Wycliffe had translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into Middle English. When he died a natural death in the middle of a church service, he was posthumously condemned and his remains exhumed, burned, and thrown into the river. William Tyndall was the first to translate the New Testament from Greek to English. Because of the invention of the print, printing press, he was also the first, uh, his was also the first English Bible to receive mass publication. He'd begun work on the Old Testament, translating the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, from Hebrew before his arrest and execution. However, his death inspired others to pick up the task. First and foremost was Miles Coverdale. Coverdale was a former Augustinian friar who had caught the embers of the Reformation and, like Luther before him, resigned his place in the Augustinian order. He assisted Tyndall with the rendering of the New Testament and Pentateuch, and after Tyndall was arrested, he took it upon himself to complete the work. Now, Luther's knowledge of Hebrew and Greek was rudimentary. He, he didn't really know it. I, it's about the level of mine. Um, <laughs> uh, so he worked primarily from Latin and from Luther's German translation. However, what he lacked in his Greek and Hebrew proficiency he more than made up for his immaculate, beautiful use of English. Coverdale knew the importance of the Bible. And in his poem, The Book, he sings its praises. To the Book by Miles Coverdale. I left the title in its original spelling. I updated the rest because Tudor English not ours. <laughs> so go, little book. Get the acquaintance among the lovers of God's word. Give them occasion the same to advance and to make their songs of the Lord. That they may thrust under the board all the ballads of filthiness. And, and that we all with accord may give examples of godliness. Go, little book, among men's children, and get thee to their company. Teach them to sing ye commandments ten, and other ballads of God's glory. Be not ashamed, I warrant thee, though thou be rude in song and rhyme. Thou shalt to youth some occasion be, in godly sports to pass their time.
Now, working mainly in exile on the continent, Miles Coverdale completed the first English Bible in around 200 years. Now, after Henry VIII got into his infamous spat with the Pope over his desire for an, a divorce, or an annulment rather, uh, he, uh, and subsequently he divorced the Church of England from Rome, many Protestant reformers returned to England, including Coverdale, who quickly found work. King Henry authorized an English translation of the Bible for the first time, Covers Coverdale's own new revision of his intendable's work. This would become known as the Great Bible. And the second edition of this Bible would feature a foreword by Henry's new Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer was a priest and a scholar. He'd almost three decades of academic background at Cambridge uh, before becoming a priest. And originally, he was very Catholic. He was, he was very critical of Luther. However, he began corresponding with reformers on the continent. And then, uh, when Cranmer assisted Henry VIII in his annulment proceedings, uh, he earned a position as an ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire, where he traveled to the continent and saw the effects of the Reformation for the first time. He also met his wife there, uh, which was not a popular thing for Catholic priests at the time, or now. <laughs> Uh, his wife was actually the niece of a Protestant theologian, even, so. That didn't help things, Matt. Uh, of course, all of that, especially under the circumstances, didn't stop Henry from appointing Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury in 1532, when he wasn't even a bishop. So... Uh, it became official after Cranmer was consecrated a bishop in March 1533. Cranmer personally annulled the king's marriage to Catherine, validated his marriage to Anne Boleyn, the Pope excommunicated the king, Cranmer and others, Henry VIII appointed himself head of the Church of England, excommunicated the Pope, the rest is history. <laughs> Uh, now, now, we tend to think, okay, Henry VIII got, got his annulment, and England is Protestant now. That's not quite the way it worked, at least theologically. Um, Henry was still a Catholic at heart. Uh, theologically and practically, if not by association at this point. Thus, the Latin Rite itself remained in place for several years. However, in 
1536, Henry ordered Cranmer to commission an English Bible to be placed in every church and that no one should be admitted to communion without having learned the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments in English. Any of you say the, the ten really quick? <laughs> English readings of scripture in churches began soon after. Meanwhile, in 1543, Henry deemed that all churches should at least be unified under one version of the Latin rite. Uh, since there were many local variants throughout England and, in truth, throughout the Catholic world at this point. That's another thing that we often mistake. We think, okay, all of the Catholic Church was sharing the same Latin rite, and it wasn't true. In England, it was, it was different than on the continent, and even amongst Great Britain, there were different forms of the Latin rite. So, the most widely used in southern England, uh, the Sarum use, named for uh, Sarum, or Salisbury Cathedral, was chosen. Um. Uh, this proved to be a great starting point for Cranmer uh, when in uh, 1547, Henry VIII died. This finally gave Cranmer the opportunity to, to do what he had intended to do since having all those chats with the reformers. Under the child king Henry yeah, Edward VI, who was being educated and advised by a king, a team of staunch Protestants, Cranmer began swift reforms in the church. His most immediate work was to craft an English prayer book to be used throughout the land. Now, Cranmer was a scholar. His three decades in Cambridge served him well. He was well-versed in the current rites, as well as medieval liturgies and theology, and even writings from the patristic era. He was actually a really, uh, a really good patristic scholar. That's why a lot of what is in our prayer book dates back to the second or third centuries. But above all, he was a brilliant scholar and interpreter of scripture. And together with a team of 12 carefully appointed bishops, he began rendering the prayer book. A lot of people will say that the prayer book, especially the communion rites, are an English translation of the ceremonies of uh, the Mass. That is and isn't true. It was definitely a starting point. But rather than adopt it wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly or rip it to shreds, Cranmer took his pen to the text with the care of a surgeon with a scalpel. The word and table format 
that had shaped Christian gatherings since at least the early, earliest recorded church liturgies was maintained. And uh, just to answer the obvious question, the earliest church liturgies were recorded uh, around the end of the first century. Uh, a, a writing called the Didache, which is pretty much contemporary with the writing of the book of Revelation, uh, records the basic order of a service during that time. Cranmer simplified the Serum liturgy and carefully removed or corrected lines that did not fit with scripture or the faith alone, grace alone doctrines that the Reformation had brought to the fore. His principles were simple. The service must be congregational. With the Latin rite, in medieval churches, it was, it was common to come into the service and to sit and to pray, have your own time with God, while the priest spoke the entire service in Latin. Everything was said in Latin, sung in Latin, the, mass, the, the elements were consecrated in Latin, and if you didn't know Latin, and most people didn't, well, you were just kind of there, left to do your own thing. No, Cranmer wanted these services to be fully participatory. That's why the Book of Common Prayer is common prayer. It's not common in the sense of being ordinary. It's common in the sense of we do it together. Second, services must be simple. Ornateness, the, uh, the pomp and circumstance of the medieval service was to be toned down. It should be replaced by the ceremonial minimum consistent with reverence and decency. So it's not throwing out you know, all, the, all the ceremony altogether, but what is actually necessary to have a reverent service? The services must edify. And Cranmer knew that edification you know, our, our sanctification comes through the teaching of spiritual truth. So scripture readings were emphasized and sermons were made mandatory. Yes, believe it or not, you could, uh, you could go to a service before then and not have a sermon. Um, services must unify. All, the con all local congregations in England would be united by a common faith, a common worship, a common sympathy. You wouldn't go to this church in this part of the country and be getting a different liturgy than if you traveled and went 
to this church in this part of the country. All of that confusion that had existed before this time was no longer going to be there. Everyone was united in saying the same liturgy on the Sunday, using the same scriptures on the Sunday. It was quite a franchise. <laughs> Finally, the services must express the gospel. The services were to have an were an, to be an integrated unit, having an overall shape and a clear planned route to the full gospel message. Uh, there, there is a sequence throughout the service, repeated several times. Uh, you can go by a couple of different names. It means, means basically the same thing. You can say, you know, it's the law, gospel, faith, sort of arc, that keeps repeating, or sin, grace, and resulting faith. Uh, but these repeat over and over through the Anglican service, continuing to preach the gospel to us. Cranmer adapted the Sarum liturgies. He kept a lot, but he shaped them to be more gospel-centered. Um, I, I commend to you, if you were not there, the recordings of our last fall retreat. Uh, Zach Hicks, uh, it's, it's under Praying Grace on our website. But he goes into these changes in a bit more detail than I can do right now. But he dives into this overall gospel thrust of, of the liturgies in depth. But here is one quick example of, of something that Cranmer did. Uh, so this is the Collect for Purity. You know it. We say it at the beginning of every service. This version still has the traditional language, but it shows just a couple of tweaks Cranmer made. Rather than using you know, infusion of the Holy Spirit, some, something that, that is being melded to us. This is the inspiration. Yeah, that inspiration itself is rooted in spirit. Um, you know, it's, it's being given to us that we may perfectly love thee and not meritoriously. This is not a merit of our own and it's not based on merit as as the medieval church would have seen it, worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Uh, some other broad changes that he made. There was a highly reduced calendar of commemorations of saints. Uh, there were multiple saints you could commemorate all day, every day, in, uh, in the medieval church. Some of them 
didn't even exist. The prayers of saints were no longer invoked during the service. Uh, the language of Holy Communion was no longer that of a sacrifice actively being performed right then. And uh, the language likewise veered away from transubstantiation language, the, the idea that the, the element uh, ceases to be bread and wine and actually becomes fully the body and blood of Christ. Now, that's not to say that there's no element of, of real presence there. It's a, it's a much more reformed understanding, uh, while still having some elements of how a Lutheran uh, liturgy would, uh, would have some real presence language. The, the 1549 prayer book ultimately invokes more Genevan reformed memorial and spiritual presence language signaling that the elements did not themselves cease to be bread and wine, but that we receive the body and blood of Christ by receiving in faith. Finally, in addition to the rite of Holy Communion, uh, Cranmer uh, created what is arguably, and you know I think this, uh, the crown jewel of the Anglican Anglican tradition, the daily office. I can't wait till we get to our class on the daily office. Um, uh, but I will break down that those liturgies in more detail. When we get there, they are some of the liturgies that are still so much, the bulk of them is Cranmer's original work. Uh, Cranmer took the seven and originally eight monastic prayer offices and reduced them to two that could be said by anyone, morning prayer and evening prayer. He saw the value in what the monastics were doing. Uh, don't tell King Henry because he didn't have a... <laughs> uh, he shut down the monasteries. But... But... Uh, this, this idea of praying throughout the day. But Cranmer knew that you know, people had jobs. So having these periods of time at the beginning and the end of the day to pray and to, and to read huge chunks of scripture. And uh, as we addressed last week, these are huge chunks of scripture. <laughs> uh, was part of his goal. He wanted, just like William Tyndall wanted, uh, for the average person on the street to know the Bible, to absorb the Bible, to have the Bible committed to memory. Having the Bible committed to memory is part of the reason why, uh, why there's a cycle, there was then and there is now, of reading through the Psalms once a month, all of them. It's a lot to bite off, but 
those really become part of your language. Uh, the language of your mind, the language of your heart. Cranmer, uh, Cranmer's liturgical calendar, the calendar um, for, more, for the daily office that he formed, made it possible for a, for a person to cover pretty much all of the Bible that doesn't repeat itself in a year, plus a small number of selections of the Apocrypha, and for them to read the book of Psalms every month. In 1552, Cranmer extensively revised the prayer book. If the local Catholics were already angered by the language of the first prayer book, they were incensed by the second. Was um, if the 1549 prayer book's language veered slightly more toward Wittenberg, the sort of Lutheran language, the 1552 prayer book was solidly more Geneva, or Reformed Calvinist, in its language. An example, uh, in the administration of Holy Communion, so when you would come up for communion, everything, you know, we, we use a short version here. We say, you know, the body, uh, body of Christ is given for you. Uh, but the long version, and this is still in our prayer book, uh, 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 at least in the 1549, it says, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And that was it. In the 1552 prayer book, that was completely dropped. And the priest would say instead, take this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thine heart by faith with thanksgiving. So now it's leaning much more into that memorialist direction. These two phrases would be combined in the 1559 uh, prayer book as part of what's called the Elizabethan settlement. And they've stayed together in the prayer book ever since. But that is a story for next time. King Edward VI died on July 6th, 1553, at the age of 15, one year after the prayer book's revision. So a lot of churches never actually got to use the 1552 liturgy. It takes a while to get those books out to everyone. And so most churches, most individuals never knew the 1552 liturgies because Despite naming his cousin the thoroughly Protestant Lady Jane Grey, his successor, her reign was heavily disputed to the point of battle and cut short, and he, ulti he was ultimately su succeeded on the throne by his very Catholic 
older sister, Queen Mary I. She would become known as Bloody Mary and not without cause. Mary restored Roman Catholicism to England in short order and arrested England, arrested leaders of the Reformation in England, uh, many of whom would meet their deaths at her hands. We think of numerous people like uh, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and many, many others. And this included Thomas Cranmer, despite his best efforts early on. Uh, he was charged with treason uh, for supporting the enthronement of Jane Grey, uh, as well as heresy because of his many uh, Protestant writings and, oh yeah, this little book. But after his arrest, he, uh, <laughs> we'll say he, he uh, received a very posh imprisonment for a time. Uh, was able to hang out with Catholic theologians and under some pressure wrote a series of recantations of his actions and writings, repudiating, repudiating all Lutheran and Reformed theology. However, Mary was keen to make an example of him and pressed ahead with his execution. It was arranged. He was, he was to preach in the church of uh, St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford. It's still there. Um, to, to basically make his last public recantation of all of his Protestant writings. However, when he got into the pulpit, he fully repented of his recantations, saying, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy, an antichrist with all his false doctrine, before they pulled him from the pulpit. <laughs> then, brought to the stake to be burned, he placed the hand with which he had written all those recantations into the fire first, calling it that unworthy hand. Tied to the stake, being lapped by fire, his final words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, calling to mind the first martyr, St. Stephen. So, we end today with, with Protestantism now uh, not being in vogue in England. Uh, and we will pick up tomorrow with how the prayer book makes a return. Did I say tomorrow? Yeah. I meant next week. <laughs> I won't be here tomorrow. <laughs> Any questions? We've got about five minutes.
That that was specifically Sunday, I believe. Okay. Uh, that that wasn't necessarily for morning and evening prayer. Morning and evening prayer uh, could be said either at home, you know, there if if you were able to afford a prayer, prayer book and everything. But churches also, especially bigger churches, the cathedrals and everything, would have morning and evening prayer services throughout the week. Okay. Second question. Would they explain the language referring to like, performing a sacrifice? Yeah. Um, in our liturgy today, we, we talk about a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Is that going to be updated? Uh, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So, so yeah, j uh, j just to clarify, there, there is a, a language of sacrifice in the prayer book still, but it's, it's that shift from, from the offering of of the elements themselves as a sacrificing of Christ. Uh, a shift from that language to a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. This is, you know, this is, this is what we are doing. We are worshiping in response rather, rather than we are offering up Jesus himself uh, in a, in a uh, sort of reenacting the, the crucifixion. Yes? You mean in a transubstantiation way? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a clear move away from transubstantiation to, to a more reformed understanding of, of uh, spiritual presence, spirit, uh, memorialist slash spiritual presence view. Yes. Uh, oh, sorry. In the Anglican Church, you cannot dispose of the book, like the body and blood of Christ, once it's been blessed at least in Michigan. So, yep. why is that then if it's not seen as the actual body and blood of Christ? One, it's, it's still set aside uh, in, in, in a way of, you know, this has been blessed, this has been set aside for a holy purpose, uh, and it is the means by which we spiritually, you know, in our hearts, by taking, uh, by taking it, even though the elements themselves remain bread and wine, and, and different Anglicans and different theologians in general parse this out a little bit uh, differently, uh, but, but in the language we use, um, it's uh, you know by receiving those elements, though they are bread and wine, by faith we are receiving uh, the body and blood of Christ in the spiritual manner. And so, being that they've been set apart, we try to handle them uh, with with some extra care, uh, basically. So, so the elements do uh, need to be consumed. Or if we don't consume them, they can be placed in the earth, basically. Any other questions? Is it? Oh, can I just at least briefly make a comment? Sure. I'll just briefly comment. 
Yes. I think that so one of the there is an idea that is reformational that that the bread and wine are not physically Christ's body re-sacrificed in the present moment. Yes. So that's the reformational idea. But there's another idea that exists within American Protestantism that is more uh, trickled down from the Enlightenment and Enlightenment sort of materialism that physical things cannot have or convey spiritual holiness or grace. So that is more of an idea tied to enlightenment and materialism, yeah. and less the idea of the Reformation. If you are a reformational, um, you know, 15 or 1600s person, it doesn't seem unrealistic to you that a physical thing can convey a very real spiritual grace that you would not receive just by having your daily prayers at home by yourself. Physical things can convey a spiritual grace. It's sort of the idea that's yeah. held on to there. Yeah. Um, over and above any sort of enlightenment materialism. So there's the reformational idea and more of the enlightenment <laughs> idea. Yeah. That's that's good. That's that's uh, that's very good. That's that's uh, very true. Um, uh, I think that should have picked you up on my mic. That's a lot too. <laughs> um, anything else? So the enlightenment. What you just said, is that um, more of a Lutheran stance? No. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lutherans would be right there with the idea that, well, no. Not all, right? Right. Okay. No, because they seriously, they believe that the, the body of Christ is present. It's just, it isn't the bread itself. It's like over above within the bread mm -hmm. and not the bread itself. But that is how consubstantiation works. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's, no. that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's it's present with it, uh, uh, and and yet bread is still bread, and wine is uh, wine is still wine. The the pardon. There uh, in the fifteen forty nine book, uh, there's a lot of language that uh, that is still that still leans in that direction, and the. Uh, and the 1552 nudges a little bit more towards the memorialist slash uh, spiritual presence view. Uh, it, it leans a bit more away from, from that, uh, that overlap of yes, yes, uh, presence uh, in, in a tangible sense. Uh, Is that like less mystery then? I want to say less mystery. I, I mean, there's there's still an element of of you know receiving Jesus. It's honestly just you know in some ways less defined. But it is saying that the elements themselves are not are not themselves Jesus. They they are still bread. They are still wine. But by taking them in faith. We are also spiritually receiving, you know, the body and blood of Christ. We're receiving you know, that uh, a special gift. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, anything else? All right. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>